Well, hey everybody, I'm Adam Shell, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and welcome to our sermon podcast. In this episode of our podcast, we are starting into a brand new series of sermons that we're calling The Bible Doesn't Say That. And during the series, we're going to be exploring some sayings that people commonly believe are in the Bible that really aren't. So over the next few episodes, we're going to be exploring sayings like God helps those who help themselves and love the sinner and hate the sin. And even though these kind of sayings do sound like they could be in the Bible, they all contradict what the Bible actually says. So in this episode, we're going to start by diving right into the deep end, and we're going to be talking about the saying, everything happens for a reason. And we're going to see why this saying not only isn't in the Bible, it's also not true. So let's jump right into this episode's sermon. So when I was a kid, every weeknight at 7 o'clock, my mom would grab the remote and flip our TV over to CBS so that she could watch Wheel of Fortune, followed by Jeopardy. Now, when I was a kid, I wasn't exactly the world's greatest speller, so I always struggled to solve the puzzles on Wheel of Fortune, and I never really got into that game show. But since I have always been a fan of random trivia, Jeopardy has always been right up my alley. But that's not to say that when I was a kid, I was actually any good at giving the correct question to Alex Trebek's answers. As a matter of fact, whenever I sat down and watched an episode of Jeopardy with my mom, I always got at least as many questions wrong as I got right. So if I had somehow managed to qualify to be a contestant on Jeopardy when I was a kid, I would have been one of those poor contestants that was so far in the hole after double Jeopardy that I wouldn't have been allowed to compete in final Jeopardy. But there was one category of questions that I always did exceptionally well on, kind of regardless of my age. And since I grew up to become a preacher, you might be able to guess which categories I always did well on in Jeopardy. I always did well on those biblical categories, whatever they popped up on Jeopardy. So whenever Alex Trebek announced that there was a biblical category that was going to be playing out in one of the rounds, I got excited. But I didn't just get excited because I knew that I was going to be able to correctly answer whatever clues popped up in that category. The real reason why I got excited was because I knew the real contestants on Jeopardy, the people who were being paid to be there, weren't going to get the correct answer to most of the questions that they asked in the biblical categories. And when you're a kid, there aren't very many things in this world that are better than knowing something that a grown-up doesn't know. But as I got a little bit older and I became a pastor myself, I pretty quickly realized that it's not just contestants on Jeopardy who struggle to answer biblical questions. The truth is that there are plenty of people who attend church services every single week don't seem to know what's in the Bible either. Uh, a few years back, LifeWay conducted some research where they actually found that only 45% of American adults who regularly go to church actually read their Bible at least once a week. They found that 20% of regular church attenders never read their Bible at all. So it's not surprising that another research group called Barna did their own research and they found that about 60% of American adults can't even name five out of the ten commandments. They found that 50% of American teenagers think that Sodom was married to Gomorrah. And that about 15% of American adults think that Joan of Arc was married to Noah. Now, the reality is that most of the time, the things that we don't know 
about the Bible don't really seem like they're that big of a deal. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, does it really matter if a contestant on Jeopardy or someone in our church doesn't know that Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament, or that the Gospel of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament? But it's not always the case that the things we don't know about the Bible are just insignificant. Sometimes the things we don't know about the Bible can hurt us. Sometimes the things we don't know about the Bible can hurt us. And this is especially true when it comes to some sayings people commonly believe are in the Bible that really aren't. So we're going to spend our time together here at Melbourne Heights over the next five weeks taking a look at some of these sayings in a series that we're calling The Bible Doesn't Say That. And each week we're going to look at a different saying. So we'll look at five total sayings that people commonly think are in the Bible that really aren't. And we're going to be looking at these because every one of these sayings has the potential to be destructive of our faith and to the faith of other people. So as we get started today, we're going to dive right into the deep end when it comes to these sayings that aren't actually in the Bible. And we're going to start out today by talking about a saying that I have heard plenty of people use at every church that I have ever been a part of. I've even said this myself a few times over the years. So what saying are we going to be talking about today? Well, it's this one. Everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. Now, I know that there are some of you that are worshiping with us right now, whether you're here in person or joining us online, that are absolutely shocked that that saying isn't in the Bible. I mean, you've heard so many people say it over the years that you just assumed it had to be in the Bible somewhere. But the truth is that that saying and none of its equivalents are anywhere in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that everything happened for a reason. The Bible doesn't say that was all part of God's plan. The Bible doesn't say that God willed for this to take place. The Bible doesn't say any of those things. The truth is that the reason we say everything happens for a reason is to become a platitude for us. To become a fallback that we can easily say whenever we're struggling to make sense of pain and suffering that we see in the world around us or in our own lives. I mean, the place where I hear people say this phrase the most is when I'm at a funeral home and somebody is trying to offer a little bit of comfort to a family that's grieving. At this phrase, it can bring a little bit of comfort. It can be comforting to think that everything that takes place is part of some master plan that God has and there is absolutely nothing we can do to change it. But all of the comfort that we can find in this saying goes flying out the window when you stop and think about what this phrase really says. Because if everything happens for a reason, then why were millions of Jews killed during the Holocaust? Why was that part of God's plan? If everything happens for a reason, then why did COVID-19 happen? Why was that part of God's plan? Because when we say that everything happens for a reason, what we're saying is that God is responsible for it all. God is responsible for every car accident. God is responsible for every criminal act. God is responsible for every mass murder. God is responsible for every genocide. And I don't know about you guys, but I couldn't even worship a God that is responsible for all of those horrific and tragic events. 
So today I want to spend our time together talking about where this idea that everything happens for a reason comes from. And I want to spend some time talking about better responses to the problems of pain and suffering in our world. So let's start by talking about where the idea that everything happens for a reason comes from. And this idea actually comes from one interpretation of two basic doctrines of our faith. And yes, I know that when a preacher stands up here and uses the word doctrine, it can be a little intimidating, and it, I run the risk of you tuning me out because things might get boring pretty quickly. But the word doctrine is really just a way for us to talk about shared beliefs that all Christians have. And two of the shared beliefs that we all have as Christians are our belief in God's providence and our belief in God's sovereignty. And those are big theological words, so what do the words providence and and sovereignty really mean? Well, I personally like the way that Daniel Milliori, who is a theologian, explains what providence is in his seminal work, Faith Seeking Understanding. And this is what Milliori says providence is. He says it's the belief that God unceasingly cares for the world, that all things are in God's hands, and that God is leading the world to its appointed goal. So, the doctrine of providence basically says that God governs over all of creation, and that includes our world and everything that happens in it. So, as people of faith, as Christians, we believe in God's providence. We believe that God oversees everything that happens on the planet. And the doctrine of sovereignty, well, it ties into the doctrine of providence. And providence, again, it tells us that God oversees everything that happens. And sovereignty tells us that God is the only one who has the right or the authority to rule over all of creation. So as people of faith, as Christians, we believe that God is sovereign. We believe that God is the rightful ruler over all of creation. And that includes us. So as Christians, we believe that God is provident, that God oversees everything. And we believe that God is sovereign. God is the rightful ruler over all of creation. But, even though all Christians agree on these two beliefs, we don't exactly agree on how they actually work. So when it comes to our beliefs on the doctrine of providence and the doctrine of sovereignty, we actually fall somewhere along two places on a spectrum. And on one side of the spectrum, you have people who believe that God is pretty hands-off when it comes to exercising his providence and his sovereignty. So these people, people who fall on this end of the spectrum, which happens to include many of our nation's founding fathers, believe that God is kind of like an absentee landlord. That God created the building, but then he lets the building run itself. And people who fall on this end of the spectrum would never, ever say that everything happens for a reason. But then you have people on the other end of the spectrum. People on the other end of the spectrum believe that God is like the ultimate micromanager. They believe that in order for God to be sovereign, in order for God to have dominion over all of creation, that everything that, ha- that takes place has to either be willed or caused directly by God. And people who fall on this end of the spectrum believe that if God doesn't directly will or cause everything that takes place, that God can't truly be sovereign. So, if God can, if God doesn't oversee everything, if God, God doesn't cause everything, then he can't really be sovereign. So for people that fall on this end of the spectrum, they kind of think of God as a computer program, where God wrote the code for everything that has ever happened and everything that will ever happen. 
And there is no way that any bug or virus or hacker can get into the code and change what God's original plan was. So it's people that fall on this end of the spectrum that say everything happens for a reason. It's people that fall on this end of the spectrum that will say that every tragedy and every horrific event was some part of God's plan and that God had an ulterior motive for it taking place. It's people who fall on this far end of the spectrum that will say that events like September 11 or Hurricane Katrina were part of God's plan because God was punishing our nation for one moral failing or another. And if we're being completely honest this morning, I have to tell you that there are passages inside of the Bible that seem to support this way of thinking. But there are at least a couple of major problems with believing that God is the ultimate micromanager. And the first problem is, if God is completely responsible for everything that happens, then we're not responsible for anything that we do. If God is completely responsible for everything that happens, that means that we are not responsible for anything let me give you a silly example to try to make my point here. So let's imagine that right here in the middle of this circuit, I decided that I am going to bake a bunny face. Okay? Now this funny face is definitely going to distract you from what I'm talking about inside of the sermon. This funny face would probably detract from our worship service as a whole. This funny face may be enough to make you lose some respect for me if you have any left for me at this point anyway. And this funny face might even be enough to make you decide you don't want to come and worship at Melbourne Heights anymore. But if you believe that everything happens for a reason, if you believe that in order for God to be sovereign, that God has to be the one who wills or causes everything that takes place, then you have to believe that God made me make that funny face. And if you believe that, as you continue to follow that line of thought, it's going to lead you to realize that if this is true, then I am not responsible for anything that I do. God is the one who is responsible for everything. I do. And that would go for things way more serious than just making a face in the middle of a worship service. If God is responsible for everything that takes place, then God is responsible for every act of abuse. God is responsible for every act of violence. God is responsible for every murder and death that takes place. But the Bible makes it really clear to us that this isn't actually the case. The Apostle Paul, who's the foremost missionary and theologian of the first century, actually writes about this on several different occasions as he is sending letters to some of the very first Christians. Like in the book of Romans, in a letter that he sends to Christians living in Rome, Paul says this. He says, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. That in the second letter that Paul sends to Christians in Corinth, Paul says, For we must all stand before God to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. But that's just Paul. That's what Paul says. What does Jesus have to say about our responsibility for our own behavior? Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, or Matthew's biography of Jesus, Jesus tells us this. He says, I tell you that people will have to answer on Judgment Day for every useless word they speak. But your words, for by your words, you will be either judged innocent or condemned as guilty. So these couple of passages we've heard from Paul, we've heard from Jesus, and I can keep on going, but you should be kind of sort of seeing the point by now. 
The Bible makes it clear to us that God is not responsible for our actions. We are. God is not responsible for your actions. You are. But how exactly is that possible? I mean, how can God be sovereign if God isn't in direct control over every single thing that happens? Well, this leads us to the second problem with believing that God is the ultimate micromanager. And that problem is that God gave us all free will. God gave us all free will. And what is free will? Well, free will is our belief that God gives us the ability to make our own choices. So, if I were to stand up here in the middle of this sermon this morning and make a funny face at you, that is something that I chose to do. God didn't make me make that funny face. I did. And what that means is that I should be held accountable for my actions. And that's true for everything that we always do. And we see this belief in free will play out throughout truth is the very first time that we see this idea of free will inside of the Bible takes place in the very first book of the Bible. And it doesn't just happen in the very first book of the Bible, it happens in the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible. So, as we're thinking about this, we're going to see inside of the book of Genesis, how this plays out in Genesis 1.28 when God is speaking to the very first people. And this is what God says to them. God says, be fertile and multiple. Fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and everything that's crawling on the ground. So in this passage in Genesis chapter 1, God has just finished creating the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And then God turns and he looks at people and he says, all right, you guys are in charge. God gives his authority over creation to us. But does that mean that God is not sovereign? Of course not. What God is showing us in Genesis chapter 1 is what sovereignty really means. And sovereignty and authority, it doesn't mean your ability to accumulate power for yourself. What real power, what real authority, what real sovereignty is about is your willingness to share power with others. And in Genesis chapter 1, God willingly shares his power over creation.
Moses was the leader that God had appointed to lead the people of Israel throughout their exodus. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses is going to speak to them one more time. And this is what Moses says to the people of Israel. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live loving the Lord your God, obeying Him, and holding fast to Him. For that means life to you in length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses is speaking on behalf of God, and he lays out a choice before the people of Israel. He tells them that they can either choose life, or they can choose and if they want to choose the path that leads to life, that means that they are going to choose to obey God. But if they want to choose the path that leads to death, that means that they are going to choose a path where they can do whatever they want without any regard to anyone else. But ultimately, God is giving them the power to choose. They can choose which of those two paths they will take. But why would Moses tell the people of Israel that they have this choice? God had already made the decision for them. Why would Moses tell the people of Israel that they got to choose between the path that leads to life and the path that leads to death if they didn't actually have any say in the matter at all? But the reality is, Moses wouldn't. So when Moses tells the people of Israel that they have a choice, he means it. He means that they get to choose for themselves. God has not preordained or predestined for them to follow one path or the other. The people of Israel get to decide for themselves. And it's all because of free will. Free will means that you and I get to use our hearts, our minds, our consciousness. Yes, hopefully some guidance from God to decide which path we will follow. Whether we will follow a path that leads to life, path that leads to death. And it's a real choice that each of us have to make. Alright, so we spent most of our time together this morning talking about where this idea that everything happens for a reason comes from. And I've tried to show you that it comes from just one interpretation of two basic doctrines of our faith. The doctrines of providence and the doctrines of sovereignty. And there are people who believe that in order for God to be sovereign, it means that God has to directly will or cause everything that happens to happen. But I've tried to show you that if God is responsible for everything that happens, it means that you and I aren't responsible for anything that we do. The Bible shows us that's not the case. We're responsible for everything that we do, everything that we don't do. We're responsible for every decision that we make. We're responsible for our own choices. But I also told you earlier in this sermon why we hear this phrase, everything happens for a reason, as often as we do. And we hear this phrase because it's become a platitude. It's just an easy thing that we can say whenever we're trying to make sense out of pain and suffering that happens in this world or happens in our lives. But the reality is there's no sufficient answer to those questions. We're never going to be able to fully understand why there's pain and suffering in this world. We're never going to be able to understand why bad things happen. We just talked about this in our last sermon series on no easy answers. But what we can understand 
understand why bad things happen, even if we can't understand why there's pain and suffering in this world, we can understand that God loves us and God cares for us. We can understand that God is a God of grace and God is a God of mercy. God is not a God of pain. God is not a God of suffering. We can understand that, yes, bad things will happen in our lives. Pain and suffering will find us all. But even though God doesn't cause any of those bad things to happen, even though God would never bring us pain and suffering in our lives, God is at work bringing good out of any bad situation that we find ourselves in. So that everything does not happen for any reason. But no matter what happens, God is always present. And God will always find a way to bring good from the bad when we experience it. So let's retire that saying that everything happens for a reason. And let's just trust that God is always at work helping us make it through any bad situation we might find ourselves in. And that God will bring good out of any bad as we come to you in this word of prayer, we know that there are times that all of us say things that just aren't true. And unfortunately, we sometimes say these things inside of church thinking that we're speaking some sort of biblical truth really ends up being destructive instead. It's definitely the case when we tell people that everything happens for a reason. Because when we tell people that, ultimately we can cause people to believe that you are a spiteful and vindictive God that you are a God who likes to inflict punishment and suffering on your people. And that just isn't the case at all. You are a God that loves us and cares about every single one of us. You are a God that hates pain and suffering in this world every bit as much as we do. You are a God who works through any bad that we face to bring good into this world. So God, let us set aside this idea that everything happens for a reason. And let us simply trust that you are always with always at work, helping us through whatever trials and tribulations we may face, bringing good through whatever bad there may be. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, it's Adam again, and I just want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of our sermon podcast. And I hope that this episode has helped you realize that the saying, everything happens for a reason, not only isn't in the Bible, it also isn't true. And that's because when we say that everything happens for a reason, what we're saying is that God is responsible for everything that takes place. And if God is responsible for everything that takes place, that means that you and I aren't responsible for anything that we do. And the Bible makes it clear that that just isn't true. We are all responsible for our own actions. You're responsible for your own actions. Well, that's it for this episode of our podcast. When we get together next time, we're going to keep talking about these sayings that just aren't in the Bible. And we're going to be talking about the saying that God helps those who help themselves. So I hope that you'll come back and join us when our next episode drops next Tuesday morning. As always, if you subscribe to our podcast, that episode will be sent straight to your favorite podcasting app. And you don't have to wait for next Tuesday to roll around to join us for another sermon and another time of worship. We'd love to have you come and worship with us 
us online every Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time, and you can join us on our church website at mhbclouisville.com slash live. We would love to have you join us. Well, until our next time together, I hope that you guys have a great week. I will be praying for you, and we'll see you back here soon for another sermon podcast.